Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, if you heard last week's episode, you might have picked up a bit of a New Zealand accent in my guest, Morgan Donoghue. That's because, like me, Morgan's from New Zealand. We did the interview in New Zealand, and we talked about some fantastic and well-known New Zealand music tech companies. And since I was in New Zealand, who better to rope into the studio as well than Sam Gribben, formerly the CEO of Serato, taking it from a tiny company making a pitch and time stretching plugin for Pro Tools to a global leader in DJ software. Sam's now the CEO of Melodics, a company dedicated to helping you get better at making music and beats by making practice something that you just do with input from some phenomenal international musicians, some really usable software and some solid psychology. Now, New Zealand seems to be a really fantastic place to not only be making music, but also to be creating music tech. So I wanted to quiz Sam on what it is that makes for a capital of music tech. What are the ingredients that can turn a place from somewhere that's a long way away from anything to the place to be if you want to make something creative and innovative that can have a positive impact on the world? So from Auckland, this is the MTF podcast featuring Melodic CEO Sam Gribben. Enjoy. So Sam Gribben, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Nice to be here. Where do you start? I mean, there's, there's all these sort of dots on the, the charts, the Serato and, and Melodics, and, but where, where's the beginning of the journey for you? Um, well, going way back, but I'm not going to take it too extreme, don't worry. Um, I had lots of music lessons as a kid, and my parents, bless them, allowed me to lose interest really quickly and then switch to another instrument. And my young brain, I can't actually remember how long I played each one, but I bet if we could figure it out, it would be absurd. I think I just would do a few practice sessions on one and be like, oh, I'm sick of this, I want to do something else. So they indulged me, and I never really learned to play instruments, but clearly something stuck there. Um, and at university, I learned to DJ, and I was like, finally, this is the one for me, because no matter how bad at it, at it I am, I can just put the needle on the record and let it play, and it will sound good. But I can still do stuff. And so I got really into that. Um, my flatmate had a pair of turntables, and I used them when he wasn't there. Um, and at that time, I was studying electrical engineering and learning about... Uh, machines and how to measure position and on machines and just kind of had this idea of like hey the cool thing about DJing with vinyl is that you can put your hand on it and manipulate it and it's this big tactile thing that you can control and the um, the fact that the music is on it is kind of almost secondary I mean it makes it sound good I never really got into that whole kind of vinyl sound debate yeah. um, I, I like the sound but that wasn't the reason for me and so I kind of had this idea that it would be possible to have music coming out of a computer and control it with a turntable. When are we talking? That is, I think, 94, 93, 94, kind of around then. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an interesting timing because that's kind of the times that MP3s were really taking off and digital music, you know. And like, I knew this guy that had a computer that had C three CD drives so he could rip lots of MP3s at once. It was that era you yeah. know like just before just before Napster Napster um so the idea that the music could be on the computer was there and I through my engineering studies I kind of knew that it was possible but I definitely didn't have the chops to actually do it um but I was really obsessed by this idea and then fast forward I left university and went on my OE and for various reasons I went to Amsterdam on my OE one of the reasons was 
there was this company there that created this product called Final Scratch, which was one of the first digital vinyl systems on the market. And I was like, I'm going to go and meet those people and um, find them. I, I did actually run into them at a party, very drunk, very late at night, and completely destroyed any hope I had of ever working with them through my like, drunken enthusiasm. Because I couldn't believe that I bumped into these guys. Right, right. But um, fast forward and uh, it was actually, you know, a friend of mine emailed me and said I just was at a barbecue in Auckland, of all places, and I ran into a guy that's been doing that thing that you've been talking about for the last 10 years, and that was someone who worked at Serato. So um, long story short, I came back and I was like, you have to give me a job. And I think um, Steve and AJ, who are the founders of Serato, had had lots of people come and show interest in what they were doing. But I was like, no, 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 I'm different. I've been literally thinking about this for 10 years and here's notebooks full of drawings and here's what you could do with video and here's this, all these other ideas and um, so they allowed me in um, to be a kind of a general, I was hired as general manager and they allowed them to focus more on the technical and R&D side and I ran the operations basically. Because they were software about you know, time stretching and that sort of thing before. Yeah, the when world. I joined them they had one product that was really successful and it was a Pro Tools plugin called Pitch and Time and it's still really industry standard in many ways for slowing down um, audio. That was the main use case was slowing down audio and preserving the quality which had been done for a long time but never um, sounding good yeah. or never sounding true to the original you know like I've been listening to a lot of I'm on a bit of a jungle Revive. I was never actually really into jungle in the 90s, but at the moment I've been listening to a lot of it. And that sound of, of the pitch down Akai rack mounted samplers is kind of part of the sound. You know? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. But that was break, but at the wrong speed. Yeah, and I think the, the, they, they had this tech and they shopped it round and round and round. But the, the opportunity they found was film studios who wanted to be able to take like a scene mm-hmm. um, and shorten it by half a second and preserve the quality of all the recordings so it was right. all about quality um so they had a great business running when i joined and i joined just before the very first dj product launched and got into that was what i was really into yeah um and worked with a lot of partners because serato was an interesting business in that we had this really strong kind of consumer brand mm-hmm. but actually all of the money came from the companies that were licensing because it relies on other people's hardware. Yeah. Uh, and especially at that stage, that early stage, it was just a product that you bought from Rain Corporation who were from Seattle, Washington. You know? mm-hmm. um, and we were the software behind it. But Serato be- kind of became the name and the brand. So we had this kind of interesting direct-to-consumer relationship, even though it wasn't our product. We'd licensed it to someone else. Okay, yeah, yeah. But worked with a lot of, you know, and then kind of negotiated to extend that beyond just that one exclusive um, agreement to working with lots and lots of different companies and worked with Pioneer and um, Akai and a whole lot of different brands. Um, and along the way, had a partnership with Ableton um, and we did a project together called The Bridge, which was way over ambitious and we created this crazy convoluted lesson in overcomplicating things. Yeah. It wasn't a success. Um, I was going to say it wasn't a great success, but it just wasn't a success at all. But formed a really, really strong uh, relationship with Ableton. Um, and then 10 years into that, I was kind of like thinking about doing 
something new and decided to start my own company. Um, and a lot of it was thinking about these relationships I had with different instrument makers, like, you know, DJ companies, but in a broader sense, instrument makers. And I was aware that there was a problem with, um, you know, people buying instruments and being really keen, but not sticking with it because it's hard, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of get over or that Or they get hurdle. bored and then yeah. switch to something else. So, and I was looking at things like um, Clear, um, Headspace, Duolingo, Strava, all of these companies that were using this kind of suite of techniques to motivate people to stay engaged and doing something that you like wanted to do. Are we talking about gamification? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. About, and it's like, why, why is no one applying this to learn to play an instrument? Because it's like, it's something I, I want to do, but I need all the help I can get to yeah. stay hooked. You know? Yeah. Um, and looked around and I didn't think anyone was really particularly nailing it. There were some people doing it. but um, And then just started bringing up all of these hardware companies and was like, I've got this idea and if I do it and pull it off and it's good and, and, and you're confident that it's good, will you help me to distribute it and reach people? And that was really what gave me the um, the head start, you know, the kind of the leg up to get started was having distribution figured out before I had to hire anyone to actually build it. Right, wow, so you actually, you sold it and got the distribution nailed before you had a product. Yeah, just all conceptually, you know, it was like, we've worked together in the past, you know me, you know what I've done, there's this big out clause that you can take of like, you have to like it, Yeah. but if I do do this and you think it helps your customers to, um, use your product in a better way or you know get more out of your product will you basically tell them about what we're doing I'm like, yeah sure why not um, and I thought that was actually gonna be a hard sell but I went to all of these companies and selling this idea and, and expecting to have to really work hard but I got a really great reception and I think um, one person said it really well that if this works, then people will play more instruments and the whole industry will benefit. So we all want it to work. You yeah. just have to do it well. And I was like, okay, that seems like a good deal. I have to do a good job of it and then you'll support me. So um, that made a huge difference. Right, right. So that's the overall trajectory. Yeah. There's a point in there which Serato give you a managerial job as somebody who's essentially a technician with a notebook. Yeah. Uh, what was it about you that made them think, this guy should be running things? Um, well, I had studied engineering, but I'm a terrible engineer. Not, you know, like I'm not that technical. Technical right. enough to kind of understand concepts, but I can't write code or build circuits or anything like that. Right. I'm a bit of a hack with a soldering iron. Um, and after studying, I'd worked in kind of project management and operations, and I may have embellished my CV really heavily to Stephen AJ, the founders of Serato, and be like, I did all these things. I mean, I had, but I talked it up. Um, I think the big thing was I'd worked at startups in Holland uh-huh. in a kind of a general operations role, and I was like, it seems to me that you need to write a user manual and hire people and you need an accountant and you need a new office and that office is going to need blinds and then we're going to have to have beta testing and I can take care of all of that. Like, right. That sounds good. Yeah, and also sounds like things that they didn't want to do themselves. Yeah. They wanted yeah, somebody yeah. else to and take care I of it. definitely sold it to them. I was like, you, you know, you guys do the things that you're best at, which I've got no idea how to do, and I will just like keep things rolling and mm. um, help make things happen. Well. 
What is it about New Zealand that makes it possible for things like serato and melodics to kind of get the kind of foothold that, that you have? Uh, I think that serato helps allow melodics to get the kind of foothold. Okay. So that, you know, is a huge... I mean, I got melodics off the ground because of my experience, and I got my experience from serato um, and reputation and contacts and network. So there's really that. What allowed... Um, Serato to get that was I mean I think a lot of it was just like really really talented people at the right place at the right time mm -hmm. and there is a little bit of a New Zealand attitude can do but I think it's more actually down more down to the personalities of the founders of Serato and they were like you know this is rubbish we can do better than that mm. and you know with, with the, especially with the original pitch and time time stretching mm. Um, the kind of origin story of Serato is that Steve West, one of the founders, wanted to learn to play bass and he wanted to slow parts down so he could learn how to do it and he got the current state-of-the-art technology and he was like, this sounds awful, I'm going to do it better. Right. Um, and he's really that kind of guy, you know? Like, he got into electric cars and you couldn't buy a Nissan Leaf or a Tesla so he ordered the parts off the internet and built one, you know? That kind of guy. But... Kind of looping back to the question though, part of what really motivates me to do melodics is that I think New Zealand can't, New Zealand companies and as, kind of, as a country we can do this mm -hmm. sort of stuff and because we can we should because it's way better than flying people here on jet planes to you know, drive around in camper vans or, um, or exporting milk uh, in terms of where it can take us and how sustainable it is and you know, I very much think that that's the future. So the idea of New Zealand as a music tech capital is of interest to you or something that you want to reflect out to the world as something that's already happening? The wider thing is New Zealand as an exporter of IP and tech. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, there's, there is a lot of music tech happening here now. And we kind of, you know, I was talking to the now CEO of Serato, um, Young Lee, a little while ago and kind of joking about how we should take on Berlin and Sweden and Mostly those places, right? As known as a music tech place. And it's like, why not? You know, we've got some great companies. Um, there's Serato Melodics, of course, uh, in music. Ableton have not so much an office here, but one of their senior people is a good friend of mine who works from here. Um, and there's other kind of companies like Serato in particular gets to a certain stage where there's enough people who have trained up and learnt there that they're you know, I'm one of them that have spun off these kind of second generation companies. Um, and we're in a position where we can create an ecosystem and then together, like we can go to um, the university and say, hey, there's, there's jobs for people who train with these particular skills. And so that means that there's more people coming through and this is how it kind of gets started. Yeah. At Music Tech Fest, we've been to a lot of cities around the world, all of whom want to see themselves as sort of music tech capitals. And, you know, yeah. every, every single one of them go, oh, you were That was me. That was me <laughs> smacking my fist against my palm. We can do it. We'll from, take from, them on. from Mannheim to Norshipping to, to, you know, wherever you go, it's like, well, we've got these great companies and we have the scene and we want to do it. What's the, I guess, what's the um, USP? For somewhere like Auckland, let's say, um, what what is it about the place? The place, I think, has a real draw for um, tech people who are into music because of the lifestyle. You know, I think that that's not to be underestimated. Um, if you're a hardcore techie, you you know probably quite attracted to Silicon Valley. 
Um, if you're into music, generally, you've got a little slight left of centre bend, or you're you're more interested in other things, and then like the place really appeals. Um, so I think that's that's a big factor. Um, and again, to this kind of wider mission, I have a lot of friends who left New Zealand in the late '90s or early 2000s to go to London and go to real countries where there were real jobs and to be able to wave the flag and be like, hey, we've got real jobs here now. You should right. come back. What's changed since that time? Uh, I think that the overall tech scene has kind of had enough throughput that it's reached this level of maturity where you can kind of look at like a big company like Trade Me, made a lot of money, but, you know, some rich people came out of it. They funded another generation of companies like Zero and Vend and kind of Serato's along there and now there's another generation coming out of that. And so it's actually, there are actually now some really interesting companies doing interesting things and, and offering interesting jobs. Is there the funding infrastructure here mm, in New Zealand? No, not really. It's coming along. Yeah. Um, it has been something that's held companies back. But I think the ones that have succeeded have found it a little bit in New Zealand and a bit out of New Zealand. And but I, I mentioned Ableton before. They were our lead investor. And so they've, that's really opened a lot of doors for us. Yeah. Um, but that, I was lucky to have those kind of international networks. It's much harder if you're just starting out here. Mm. But it's getting better. And is the infrastructure there technically in terms of things like, for, for instance, the internet uh, speeds are not yeah, known I mean, I to be I, super hot? Yeah. I mean, I think that personally, I don't really get that. and It, it works, you know. Um, it's much more about talent and networks and contacts and, and like, being able to talk someone to someone who's been there and done it before, that's a much bigger factor than how fast your download speed is, I think. Seems like there's no shortage of music, though. Yeah, there's a lot of music. And uh, I don't know, actually, how much more music we have or different music than other countries, but a lot of, a lot of people are into music here, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we consume music slightly differently. You know, like, I think... Maybe I'm in my own echo chamber, but I think Kiwis are maybe have slightly wider tastes than more just straight mainstream pop. Mm. Um, I mean, you've worked in radio, right? I've got this theory about radio population and music tastes. Okay. Which if you allow me a couple of minutes. Go for it. Go for it. This is um, totally in my, in my camp. Yeah. So in a big city like New York, there is a fixed amount of radio spectrum. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a fixed amount of radio spectrum and you know, pre-digital radio, you could have 10 stations or 100 stations or whatever it is. That's all that fits. Yeah. Um, and because there's so many people and so many consumers, one particular model will like, rise to the top and be successful and then just eat all the other ones. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of naturally tends towards all being the same because the most poppy and the most mainstream will just win and eat everything else Mm -hmm. whereas the amount of spectrum relative to the population in new zealand was always kind of flipped around the other way so you could have these weird student radio stations basically and other radio stations that could exist on the spectrum because there wasn't someone else who'd come along and be like i'll pay a hundred million dollars for that little slice of the spectrum and so we're exposed to wider music i think yeah i think there's that and also i mean there's a lot of things that are unique about new zealand radio i mean to you know, put my geek hat on, uh, New Zealand was massively deregulated, so every single spot on the spectrum was available for sale. And uh, the laws in place about EV radio, about access radio, about student radio, 
uh, things like George FM came out of the, uh, the guard band situation. And basically, it's the only country in the world where anybody who wants to can buy a transmitter and just turn it on, start yeah. broadcasting. Um, as long as you're not sort of broadcasting over the top of somebody else, you, yeah. you can just go for it. So yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting, unique things that happen because of that. But I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot you could put at the feet of, of student radio, BFM in particular. Um, that opened people's ears up to things because it's it's you know disproportionately popular for what they broadcast, yeah. you know, which is which is kind of interesting. But do you think that leads on to melodics users? Is there a, more of a, an appetite to make an experiment with music here to create like music products? Well, um, yeah, to to make music. Uh, oh, to make music. Yeah. Do, do people want to sort of come out of listening to eclectic different things and and you know, having their ears open to the big wide world of music and going, I, there's, there's room for me to make something in there. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's, um, like, certainly compared to the US, there's less of this kind of, the US has such a strong cult of celebrity mm-hmm. where I find talking to music makers in the US, they all want to make it. Right. You know, and hit the big time, be famous and be rich and popular. Whereas I think here there are more people who, want to express themselves creatively through their music rather than, you know, reach the top of the charts. Yeah. Nice to reach the top of the charts, but that's not necessarily... It doesn't necessarily make you rich and famous either. No, exactly. So there's a lot more people doing it because they want to make the music that they hear in their head or, or just create. Sure. So what is it that made melodics work? Because you, you said, you know, you would get the distribution if it worked. Yeah. Clearly it's worked. What is it that makes it work? Um, I think that, I mean, our fundamental driving idea is that you need to practice to get better at playing a musical instrument and, and practice is hard and, and kind of quite boring or, or challenging. And um, that what we do is we make the practice part not so much of a um, like grind that you just have to get through, but the actual fun part. You know? So it's you know you want to do your practice and you feel i mean i think there's some interesting psychology in it where um motivation often or generally kind of comes from a sense of progress like you feel like you're making progress and the kind of the key word in there is a sense of it yeah so you might actually be making amazing progress but not feel like you are and give up right yeah and fortunately for us you might also be making terrible progress but if you feel like you're making progress you'll keep at it so a lot of it's just feeding back it's working. And I guess it's a series better. of plateaus. Yeah. yeah. And helping people to break through those. So what we do is, you know, I always present it as it's a product or software to help people learn to play instruments, but it's much more actually to help you practice and get into good practice habits and um, set you up to succeed. So I was going to ask you, um, you've got this, this methodology of uh, getting people to practice and breaking through these plateaus and all the rest of it. You've got some really heavyweight people going, this is a good idea. Like yeah. on, the, on the website, you go, oh my God, that's, and fill in the blanks. Was that part of the gamification of it, is to get people to aspire to being like their heroes, or is it just a sort of uh, endorsement thing? Uh, it's interesting because the sitting around in 2014, I think it was, thinking about what to do, a big part of it was like, well, I know the instrument makers that I talked about, but I also know artists. And uh, I really liked at Serato having that artist involvement. It made a huge difference to like the commercial success, but it also made, I think, 
culturally the product a whole lot more relevant um, because we were working with artists and and changing how they were DJing and getting really involved in the in the culture of DJing. Um, so I wanted to keep that part of it as well. And what I wanted to do with Melodics was create a revenue stream for artists. So that's something that we we work. You know, I'm able to go to the artists I know and be like, hey, we want to license your music to turn into a lesson. Um, which is cool, especially in a world now where artists are interested in changing how they make money because you can't make money the old ways. And it's a really interesting way for artists to engage with their fans. I think we're still very early days and we're still quite small, so we're not talking about huge amounts of money for any artist, but the idea they really buy into. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you've got fans who uh, consume your music passively, this is a way that they can really get inside it and understand how it's constructed and what chord progressions you use and how the beats all go together. So, Is this about music teachers dissecting the, the kind of the, uh, musicological components of somebody's piece of music or is it masterclasses by the artists? It's more, way more basic than either of those things. It's much more like just playing the music. Um, and it's something that we were, are doing a little bit of now and we'll do more as more kind of theory and dissecting and understanding how it all works. But a lot of the feedback we get from people is just like, I'm learning, say, beat making or like arranging beats. I'm learning lots of new ways of doing it by be being exposed to like all of these different variations from different artists and from the content that we make ourselves by just learning how to play it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing quite like learning how to play you know, say like you take a simple kick, snare, closed hat, hi-hat pattern and then you learn lots of variations of that and a lot of our lessons are based on those four sounds but you start to really appreciate what the difference is when you start to swing that fourth kick a little bit this way and that hi-hat this way and it's, you're getting really deep in it. So it's not so much theoretical deconstruction but we are really interested in that and we'll do more of that. It's more just like getting under the hood and by learning how to play it and committing it to muscle memory you get a much deeper understanding hmm. so a lot of our i mean we are one thing i haven't said it was we are really aiming at the moment at music producers they're our main audience and a lot of people use melodics as their like daily warm-up so go into the studio and do five minutes of training and it's kind of like training rather than learning right as a way to kind of get in the groove and and just be like i don't know what i'm going to do today but at least i'll just do that and then i've made music today and that's a good thing right. um and be exposed to different you know different styles different genres we we keep the another thing about working with lots of different artists is to keep the diversity of genres and musical styles really broad mm -hmm. um and that's exposing producers to you know like maybe a trap producer who's playing some two-step lessons and being like oh that's kind of interesting you know that, that's why that particular drum break swings in that way is because of that particular arrangement and then they bring it into their own production. So are people going from beginner to expert uh, or is it a particular segment of this market? Uh, a lot of people are beginners and some of them do. I mean, one of the things that we, one of the mechanics that we use to help keep you engaged is like a streak, you know, and we've got people who are on a, I think the current record is of like an 800 day streak, you know, wow. so it's like coming up three years of, at least five minutes every single day. A lot of people don't have quite that dedication, but those people are, you know, like they're building confidence and they're getting really, really good. But also because it's around practice and training, 
Um, I think the more experienced you are as a musician, the more you realize that practice is really important. So it does actually, it's not like a course that you complete or is too easy for you. You know, the, if you use it as a, I don't like to really describe it this way, but as a crutch to help you practice, yep. then uh, we get a lot of quite advanced people using it as well. You know, it's just like, it's just to help me really dial in. I mean, our strength is rhythm training. You know, mm -hmm. we teach keys, mm -hmm. but we're like a rhythm centric, rhythm first approach and it helps people dial it in. Why is it you that did this? I mean, I know you've got the engineering background. I know you've got the Serato background. What is it about education particularly that, uh, that went, that's, that's the next challenge? Was it the, you know, here's a business opportunity or this is my passion for, you know, bringing music making to the world? Um, a little bit of column a, a little bit of column b you know like a little bit um i know this industry really well and what's where are the opportunities and what's it missing and i saw uh that around that time about you know five years ago education was really changing technology was changing education in lots and lots of different ways mm. but in music it wasn't and the, the state of the art was YouTube, really, and in a way, arguably still is, you know, yeah. YouTube's amazing, don't get me wrong, but um, it's quite hard to watch someone and just understand what they're really doing and stay motivated to stay at it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really, the other big thing was I played lots of Guitar Hero and I was like, this would be much better if I was actually learning to play an actual instrument. Yeah. Uh, and also with my DJing, I was quite into scratching as part of DJing and I was really bad at it. And I had exposure to the best teachers in the world. You know, like I'd hang out at a trade show booth with A-Track and he'd show me some things and, and had all these people who could show me stuff. And I did lots and lots of hours, but I didn't get any better. And I was like frustrated by the fact that I was practicing ineffectively and in retrospect, just getting worse and worse. The more I practiced the bad habits, the worse I got and the harder it was to have breakthroughs. So it's kind of, that was my personal, and as you know, kind of going back to my early childhood experience of lots of lessons, I was like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Right. And, and I kind of thinking forward, you know, like in 10 years time, I'm convinced that there will be products or a product that helps people learn to play instruments. You know, mm -hmm. it's just kind of seems really obvious to me that it shouldn't be just a slog that you rely on reading books and just grinding away at it there must be an easier way play to play along this. records yeah. and you know those sorts of things and so it's just a matter of like are we going to be the ones who can do it so how about your streak uh i think my my record is 48 days uh -huh. and it helps oh yeah 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 i mean i my um the most fun i have with music these days is um we've got an area of our office set up with a whole bunch of instruments and then first friday of the month a bunch of friends get together at skill levels ranging from like embarrassed to show up to actual like known real musicians who yeah. then show up and intimidate everyone else but it's just all just jamming just playing and um a few weeks ago we were at a session and i was playing a drum machine about playing it like freeform like finger drumming live and i'm embarrassed to say how long it took to get to the point but where but my friends were all like hey what happened to you and i was like yeah i had a breakthrough i i, I finally figured out um hand independence and how to you know, play a consistent hi-hat with one and play the kick and the snare off the beat. And it was just like the whole world opened up. And I was just playing all these like classic breakbeats. Yeah, nice. fun as hell. Wow, that's really cool. So what's the next big challenge? 
Uh, well, we just uh, last week went mobile. It's always been a Mac and PC app, so we've just launched for iPad. Um, and in the future, we're looking at more instruments and um, being able to take it to more people. The challenge really, I think, is to just keep making sure that we actually deliver on that promise of helping you to stick with it. Mm-hmm. So the thing that we're really looking at next year is just like uh, people who have been using Melodics for a while and just making sure that they're still getting a lot from it. So that that means adding things to help you not fall off, basically. You know, after six months when you're like, yeah, I could do more of this or I could go and do other things. We like keep you at it. And the, the next step for Auckland City of Music Tech? I think as companies like mine grow and we hire more people and then we create more opportunities for new people to come in and then, you know, there are a few... Yeah, I don't want anyone to leave, but also kind of long-term, I can see someone who's worked at Melodics for a while who has an idea and wants to do their own thing and is then going to start their own company. So it's just, Are you talking about incubation or campus? or That would be awesome, but there's just a natural organic thing where people will move between... You know, there's now more than one op- there's now options mm-hmm. and some people will move between them some people will spin off and that kind of hurts when it happens but they'll take people with them sure. and then create more but kind of long term it's good it's good because it just creates more talent for companies to grow and I think a, a some sort of music tech incubator is where it will naturally head as it grows you know mm-hmm. and then there's more and more people and I think the founders of the company and the CEOs of the companies involved in the New Zealand tech, music tech scene have an interest I talked about before about going to universities and, and schools and training schools and helping more students to choose uh, studies that will then you know, help them get into this space. Mm-hmm. So there's that and then you can see it kind of evolving to actually yeah, a little incubator. Uh, you know, you some scholarships or some prizes or a little bit of kind of injection capital to help spin off new companies and new ideas. Mm. It'd be really cool. And, you know, I think we're not far off um, from being able to go to government, local or, or um, overall government and say, hey, this is the thing that we could do together and get a little bit of support there and space or funding, you know. Um, like, for example... I have had a lot of help from New Zealand Trade and Enterprise with raising money and um, they organise these events that I've been invited to. And at the beginning of the event, they show this um, video that's like, this is all the amazing technology to come out of New Zealand and it's cameras that attach to helicopters for tracking um, the America's Cup boats and it's the America's Cup boats themselves and all this cool stuff. And there's a big plug for Serato right in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> that's cool. So um, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, which is government funded, and they're out pushing this is an area of our expertise for our country. So that's cool. Actually, you know, coming back to what you were saying before about why Auckland, the other thing is that we've now got a really, really solid international reputation. You know, you can go to any of these kind of big players and talk about the companies that have come out of New Zealand and they're treated with respect. Mm -hmm. So that creates a lot of opportunities as well. Right, and you can just build on that success and use that as the framework to construct more. Brilliant. Sam, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Cheers.
That's Sam Gribben, the CEO of Melodics, and that's the MTF podcast. Now, if you're interested in finding out more about what cements a city as a home of creative tech, something that goes beyond just having a local incubator, makerspace, good programmers, access to capital, and some people with some good ideas, feel free to drop us a line. This is something we've been completely immersed in at MTF for the past seven years, and it's something we're going to be working on next with the city of Mannheim in Germany as part of the ICE Labs focusing on innovation and sound for new urban environments. That's going to be at the beginning of April, and so right now is the moment to sign up to the MTF newsletter for more information about that if you're thinking that might be up your particular strasse. Just go to the Music Tech Fest website and click on newsletter. Meanwhile, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review and a rating on the Apple podcast thing. Click on the star in the Overcast player or like and share on social media. And don't forget you can subscribe for free so you don't miss a single episode. I'm Andrew Dubber. You have a great week and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.